Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm your guest host, Emmy Vadness, filling in for Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is psychopathologizing psychic phenomena. My guest is Dr. Paul J. Leslie, who is a psychotherapist, researcher, and trainer, and is the coordinator of the psychology program at Aiken Technical College in South Carolina. He has been a guest on this program five previous times. He is author of nine books, including The Art of Creating a Magical Session, Key Elements for Transformative Psychotherapy, Shadows in the Session, The Presence of the Anomalous in Psychotherapy, Transforming Themes, Creative Perspectives on Therapeutic Interaction, and Perceptions and Possibilities, Strategic and Solution-Oriented Approaches to Working with Depression. Paul is located in Aiken, South Carolina, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Paul. It's such a pleasure to have you with us on New Thinking Aloud today. Well, it's an honor to be asked back, and I, I just always enjoy getting to chat with you, my friend, so I, I've been looking forward to this. Many people are afraid to share their psychic experiences with friends, family, and even with healthcare practitioners and mental health practitioners for fear of being labeled crazy or even uh, delusional or possibly even having a diagnosis placed upon them. That's so unfortunate because specifically in my field of mental health uh, psychotherapy, um, this should be a, a, an arena where people, you know, should feel comfortable talking about most anything uh, without any uh, form of over negativity or, or stigma or just, you know, uh, horrible judgment. But um, unfortunately, that doesn't uh, seem to be the case. I, you know, I've been kind of researching this field for a while, and I found in, in a good bit of my research uh, lately, when the topic is even researched, we're not doing too good a job, particularly those of us in, in the, the mental health field. Um, I, I remember uh, reading a study by uh, Roxburgh and Everdon, who uh, wrote an article in the uh, Counseling and uh, Psychotherapy Research uh, journal. I think it came out in 2016. And they found that clients who uh, went to a therapist after having some kind of anomalous or paranormal experience, uh, due, uh, that's why they were seeking that, due to seeking help with that, uh, they, they came away uh, wanting at best and, and, and in some cases even worse after. And we found that more and more people who you know, privately will state that they would like to get help through psychotherapy with uh, the issues they may be having that some people may label spiritual or paranormal. There's real fear of being uh, labeled uh, as, as having some kind of psychopathology, some uh, mental health disorder. But in reality, they just want validation a lot of times and, and even just a normalization of their experience. 
In that Roxburgh and Everton study, what was surprising to me was uh, they had a group of people who, uh, after having near-death experiences, they were so uh, uh, confused by that, they actually sought mental uh, health professionals to help them. They found that in that group of people who had uh, near-death experiences sought help, half of them were worse after seeing a therapist. Now, now this is horrible. I mean, just th- these, these are absolutely terrible outcomes. Um, and step further in the same study, they found people who, uh, had, were uh, going through grief and bereavement due to the loss of a, a loved one. They were, these, some of these people were experiencing a, uh, the presence of their departed loved one in their life, which confused them, whether it was they saw them, they felt their presence. So when they went and sought, uh, help. Again, uh, half of them felt overall the therapist was not supportive, not accepting, and it was just an overall unhelpful experience. Uh, William Miller in, uh, in the Journal of Clinical Psychology way back, I think it's 2004, uh, just pretty much stated most people avoid spiritual topics in psychotherapy because they're unsure how they're gonna be, uh, received and perceived because if you're you know putting out information that maybe you're scared that other people will judge you on in daily life such as an addiction uh an extramarital affair uh those are kind of normal things that we hear about in therapy things like i see disembodied i hear disembodied spirits i see weird things i have psychokinesis happening or whatever you know they think is going on if they're so fearful of judgment, they won't talk about those things. And so they're left, like the 50%, left wanting, left pretty much um, abandoned uh, in support uh, by their mental health professional. And I... I I just think that's, uh, that's just, uh, that's not a cool thing. I mean, I, again, it's the, the research is out there that our clients want to talk about, uh, these kind of things when, when they happen. And we, I think, have an obligation, regardless of our personal beliefs, to actually give them a space to express themselves and to hopefully get some sense of, of comfort. Because obviously, if it's something that's driving them to uh, therapy to deal with, what they're needing is comfort, what they're needing is peace, and, and certainly what they need is support in a non-judgmental attitude. And it just breaks my heart that only 50% of people are getting help with this. We're not doing a good job. We could do better. You mentioned people who have had near-death experiences and spontaneous contacts with the deceased. I just had the pleasure of recently interviewing Evelyn Elsasser out of Switzerland, who uh, founded the Swiss International Association for Near-Death Studies and just completed a large-scale or the first phase of a large-scale study uh, on with multiple languages with Chris Rowe, Callum Cooper, and David Lorimer. And in that research that was uh, done with many different languages, it was discovered, and it may be even consistent with other research, that 50 to 60 plus percent of people are having these experiences. And we know from research with people like Dean Radin and other awesome parapsychologists that many people, uh, upwards of even 80 plus percent of people, have at least one type of psychic experience in their lifetime. Yes, and then you get into this idea of uh, normalizing things that a knee-jerk reaction 
from a lot of people that that's abnormal. I remember uh, an article in um, a clinical psychology review by Johns and Van Oes. Uh, they found in their research that there are normal individuals all throughout society who experience hallucinatory experiences under no special circumstances. So uh, they're kind of defining it as a hallucinatory experience. But if people are having these uh, anomalous uh, paranormal experiences and there's no special conditions, there's no evidence of uh, a, a trauma reaction, and, and this is uh, at least half of our population, then to me, that is no longer uh, a paranormal. It's like this is, is the norm for some people. You know, I look at it this way. Um, there are some people out in the world who absolutely love Brussels sprouts. Now, I don't know the statistics, but uh, I think that uh, there, we can say there's half. So we don't say people who don't like Brussels sprouts like me. Um, or, or, or something wrong with us or there's something, boy, you're really a deviant. It's like we all are tend to have, you know, certain things that we do and we don't do. Could that possibly also be in this anomalous realm? Things happen to some people that don't happen to others. But then if we have researchers saying that a, a majority of people are going to have at least one incidence of an auditory or religion, uh, visual hallucinatory experience, is this not becoming the norm? Now, I just want to be clear here. I'm not arguing that everything that is in this, uh, these experiences people are having is supernatural. Uh, I, I don't think, and me as a therapist, sometimes it's not as important to find what the ideology is. It's more of what's happening for that person. Is that a comforting thing? For the, for the person. For some people, it's very comforting. For some, it's very disconcerting, which is what may drive them, uh, to therapy. But I think the, the biggest issue here for me is that we naturally draw a distinction about what's the norm and what's not. And as a culture, a society, all cultures do this. They have their set of what's the norm and what's not. You know, the great, uh, Mathematician and mystic George Spencer Brown, in his uh, landmark mathematical book uh, called Law of Forms, talked about that every act of creation is the act of making a distinction. And what he mean mean is that when someone perceives something, they also simultaneously have to perceive what it's not. So if you say uh, there's a thing, you have to think of thing and then there's a slash and there's not thing. So A and not A. But we forget a lot of times that we are the ones, either individually or as a culture, who are making that distinction, saying, well, this is reality. There is objective, fundamental reality like gravity. But then the bulk of our experience is kind of a constructed reality, as in that we're making distinctions about things rather than really the thing. It's our distinctions and then our abstractions about it. And then we start to label those. Now, depending on the culture, you may label uh, seeing your deceased grandmother walk across the room as something pathological, as something upsetting, as, as these pathological results of my grief. Or if you're in Haiti... That's a normal way for the next, I don't know, three to six months after a loved one dies to happen to see him, maybe even talk to him. It's not a big issue over there. But, you know, you come over here into maybe our more uh, 
rigid view of things in our culture and you start telling someone, yeah, the other day I had a conversation with grandma and came and sat down. Oh yeah, she's been dead for three months. Obviously someone's going to react to you in a different way because we are making a certain distinction. Now it doesn't mean our distinctions are always wrong or you know people in AD are right or wrong. It's just being aware that the distinctions we're making also extends to how we're diagnosing people. Uh, if, if doing a mental health diagnosis requires that we we uh, kind of use our observations and we make certain distinctions to rise at a label and we arrive at that label, then we kind of start to create a reality around that label. We forget we're the ones who are making the distinction and a lot of these diagnosing, a lot of the ways we see these these uh, uh, experiences that people happen, we're creating part of that because when we observe it, we instantly label it and then put it in a category of good or bad, depending on who's making the distinction. You mentioned that most people have at least one hallucinatory experience in their lifetimes. Yeah, I was reading a study, which I just right now, I think it was in Holland. I cannot remember. Uh, it, it may come to me, but uh, it was essentially they found in this large survey that uh, most people in the survey have had some experience of either a visual or an auditory hallucinatory experience. Now, uh, I don't know the specifics of their criteria for how long that lasted. It may have been that you happen to hear a voice uh, one time that's not your voice and you can uh, ascribe no uh, other a reason for hearing that voice. Well, you could chalk that up to being an auditory hallucination. But if people are having that, it comes down to that may be the norm. But here's where our distinction kind of comes in. Is this something that's causing them distress or harm in their life? And I think that's where we get into this idea of psychopathologizing uh, the the paranormal, the uh, the uh, psychic phenomena, and things like that. The argument is, if people are not having negative experiences, it isn't impacting their daily life. It isn't impacting horribly impacting their family, their social interactions, their ability to hold a job. Then should we not just maybe be very careful in uh, putting a frame around their? Experience experience as something that is abnormal or needing to be treated, uh, because if it's not causing them problems, then is it really a problem? And I think that's the big thing with, with diagnosing in general. Um, you know, it's funny, there's this book, um, if anyone's uh, gone to the field of psychology, they've heard of the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which I think the first edition came out in 19. 52. And it's uh, every 10 years, they issue a new edition. And it's a listing of all the criteria for uh, mental health disorders. So major depression, uh, dysthymic disorder, uh, bipolar one, bipolar two, generalized anxiety, etc, etc. All these different disorders and, and what exactly the client patient has to have in order to meet that criteria. This is the diagnosing Bible, if you will. Well, we're in the fifth edition, so it's been over 50 years now. Kind of a funny thing. It's like the uh, the fifth edition came out. The, the 1952, the first edition, was only 32 pages long. The new edition is only 947 pages long. 
So uh, I'll just leave the audience with that for the moment because it's like, okay, what's happened? What's happened is a lot of this stuff's always been here. It's who's making the distinction as is, is it a problem? And if it's a problem, how do we categorize the problem? All right. Here, a quick example. Borderline personality disorder is a, is a big diagnosis in the uh, DSM. But back in the 50s and 60s, uh, when somebody was called borderline, it was because they were walking the borderline between sanity and insanity. So it was this kind of a global uh, perspective, as is. Uh, you know, a lot of those disorders from that time, hence only 32 pages. Now, if you look up borderline personality disorder, there's a criteria, uh, aband- severe abandonment issues, self-harm, uh, emotional instability, et cetera, et cetera. So we are now starting to make distinctions that uh, are, are new, different. And I'm not saying this is always unhelpful. In some ways, diagnosing can be helpful. For example, if I have a client and I have to refer them to another therapist or psychiatrist or someone and they have the diagnosis, we should agree upon the criteria that's in that manual, that they have these uh, symptoms. So that, that's a benefit. So, you know, we can kind of have an agree, hopefully agreed upon standard. But the problem is the people who are creating the standard uh, which is a, a vast board of well-meaning psychiatrists because it's put out by the American Psychiatric Association. They're making distinctions, and their distinctions are maybe on different uh, people that they've seen, different research they've read. So you can't make these, a lot of times, these global statements about, oh, that is uh, X whatever disorder, because that may change. You think about it. I mean, it changed 10 years ago. So suddenly, it's kind of like my mom recently had this thing where her cholesterol's been fine for 20 years, never a problem. And she told me the other day, she went to the doctor and the doctor now wants to put her on cholesterol medicine. I said, well, your, your cholesterol go up? She says, no, they, they changed the scale. So they've changed the scale. Her, her, so a week ago, she was great. She was fine. Now they changed the scale and you've got to go on this cholesterol medication. So uh, I'm just using that as, as an example of who's creating these uh, distinctions. Sometimes they're helpful, but sometimes they're not. And particularly in it with topic we're talking about, we have to be clear that if somebody's going to be diagnosed with a disorder, we need to make sure, uh, any disorder, but we need to make sure that it is something that is a disorder, meaning it's disordering their life. Not just, I have depression on Thursday afternoon. You know, this is something that goes their entire uh, realm of their life, their personal, social, professional life. So when somebody uh, would go to therapy because they feel the presence of their dead husbands around them, it's very disconcerting. But their family relationships are good. They can hold a job. They, they, they feel good in every other area of their life. Before we jump into thinking it's some kind of delusional uh, uh, disorder or hallucination, experience that needs to be medicated away, we might need to step back and have a, have a, a more uh, wide view of, is that our distinction based on, uh, you know, our discomfort as, as therapists with, with what's happening? You know, Nick uh, Totter, who uh, wrote a book, I think, called uh, uh, Psychoanalysis and the Paranormal, stated that a lot of times why these topics of uh, paranormal strange things aren't discussed, even spiritual ideas aren't discussed as much as they could be, is because it puts the therapist at a disadvantage because it takes away some of the power uh, then. 
And I, I find that fascinating. I remember um, James Lomax and uh, Jeffrey Kripal, I think back in 2011 in the American Journal of Psychiatry, said the best thing we can do to help people who are seeking help with these uh, instances is to look at these paranormal anomalous experiences as sacred moments in psychotherapy. Because if we just frame that as a sacred moment of connection and, and disclosure, then that enhances the therapeutic alliance, which research has shown if the therapeutic alliance is strong and enhanced, your outcomes are going to be better. So naturally, just by giving people space to have this as a sacred moment, you're going to increase their overall outcome in any other, if they have any other issues that they're grappling along with this. We might need to review how we're, we're looking at things. Is it dysfunctional and is it a, a disordered uh, and is it, is it such a deviance from the norm? And as we've already just ascertained, uh, it, the norm may be that more people have these experiences than not. I've even heard that it's possible that the therapists, these mental health therapists who may have discomfort working with their clients in these areas might also be having some of these experiences themselves, but they keep it private for fear of how it might impact their own career and profession. That's absolutely correct. Uh, I remember uh, the the psychoanalysis Robert Stoller basically hid for years all these weird things he was having where he would have dreams about his client that he was supposed to see the next day and then the client would come in and tell him exactly the thing that he dreamed and these these almost like telepathic um uh, situations and uh, I, I actually wrote a book called Shadows in the Session where I give a little space for some therapists who are uh, brave enough to disclose some of their experiences, uh, not only uh, just having uh, abnormal, bizarre phenomena, but actually having it in sessions with with clients. I mean, I've, I've said on a, a different episode of New Thinking Allow where I described in detail my own experience of feeling like there's a unseen presence in the room kind of direct my interaction with a uh, with a client that was uh, very troubling to say, <laughs> say for me as a guy who at that time was uh, fairly rigid in his thinking and, and um, kind of more inclined to be skeptical, which I still am a little skeptical of a lot of things, but it, it helped me relax a little bit and say, well, if, if someone like me can have an experience, whether it was a truly some strange, weird phenomena or just the way our two brains at one time just kind of met and we thought we had it, then that doesn't automatically mean that, that you know, people are, are instantly mentally ill or, or, you know, weird stuff just happens. And I think, you know, being okay with weird stuff happening and talking about it uh, is important. A lot of people that I've talked to privately when uh, who are in the, the mental health medical field, they will tend to not talk about those things because just a fear of, of same thing that the clients are, fear of labeling, fear of uh, losing credibility. Because let, let me put it this way. Right now is, is, is fascinating time period because we are, even though we've got great technology, we're actually mirroring the same things, uh, that happened back around the, uh, the time period of William James, who's one of my heroes, kind of the father of American psychology, who thought it would be a really great idea since psychology was a new field and 
focused on consciousness. Let's study consciousness in all its forms. So he started hearing about people having all these seances and having strange phenomena happen. So he said, well, it's human experience. Let's scientifically study it in a pragmatic way. And uh, he was absolutely murdered by his colleagues who, right before he started doing that, thought he was, you know, this incredible genius, which he was. And so it, it's it's this back and forth between the, the believers and the skeptics. And, and, and we have the professional believers and the professional skeptics. It's mirroring the same uh, same thing back then where they tried to ruin Williams James reputation. This this group of early psychologists who were terrified that the field would be turned into uh, something that's aligned with uh, the spiritualist movement and, and thought that his research was uh, was totally uh, flawed, even though he, he had very, for his time, had very tight protocols. I remember an uh, author named Jeremy uh, Northcote, who was a sociologist, wrote a book called Paranormal and the Politics of Truth. And he said the reason why uh, we can't have uh, as... as uh, I would say effective dialogues as we can between these two groups of people is that uh, particularly one group who may be more the, the skeptics and there's a lot of professional skeptics out there view their, their, uh, the other side as opponents and not just opponents, but opponents, uh, not just mistaken people, but they see them as social threats to the proper order of things in the world. So if you're naturally looking at your debate opponent as if, my gosh, if you say that people may have weird experiences, we'll go back to the dark ages or we'll lose uh, all scientific progress, then it's real quick to shut those uh, things down and not want to talk about those things and just to dismiss them and avoid any kind of debate to the point to where it's almost ludicrous. I, I recently saw uh, someone I very much respect, uh, his work, who was challenged to a debate on telepathy to discuss research by Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, who's an Oxford-trained biologist who's uh, done a lot of research on telepathy. And uh, the person in question, his response is, well, I don't have enough bandwidth on my computer to really do that kind of thing, as opposed to, well, isn't this a a fundamental uh, topic to really discuss between both sides in a respectful debate. But when it's, I don't want to do it, it's just it doesn't exist, or these people are the enemies of the state, you know, metaphorically, it's hard for us uh, to have those good conversations. And I'm in a field where it's all conversation. You know, someone comes to me with a problem, we talk about it. We we go around about it. We we discuss it together. Sometimes we suffer together as, as we would help people through. But when it comes to this, it's uh, kind of tight-lipped and, and move on, nothing to see here. And I don't think that's that's good for our clients at all. How much of the research that you share do you feel has actually been disseminated or received amongst mental health practitioners? We're in a, a, a nice time period is that uh, you can go into like uh, a Google and type in Google Scholar and pull up all kinds of articles. So now it's just easier to get this information. As far as receptivity, I think we're still, again, this is just my opinion. I think we're still on the 50-50, maybe a little bit 51-49. I don't know either way, but I, I think it's it's still this thing, like I said, of 100 years or, or more ago. 
I do know that uh, Roxburgh Everden uh, did another study where they actually talked to therapists. And a lot of therapists, and these were therapists in the United Kingdom, were very clear that they felt they needed training in this because they were seeing more people who were opening up uh, and talking about this, and they felt totally unprepared for it. John Carpenter, the uh, clinical psychologist who I think is from uh, North Carolina, was really pushing for, back in the, I think the late 80s, early 90s, about something called clinical parapsychology, so that a, a clinical perspective on this, how to help people uh, with this without it automatically being a pathology-focused endeavor. So having the training to know when someone is experiencing something that may be detrimental to them, it may be a biological issue, and people who are experiencing something who are not pathology-driven uh, in, in how they're, they're uh, uh, experiencing their events. And I think having a, uh, a parapsychologically informed therapist or doctor, I think is important because if the therapists are saying, we're seeing this, we don't know what to do with it. That to me is a clear cry out to the field. We got to do something. But I haven't seen a whole lot in the uh, literature, particularly here in the United States, uh, about this. Some of it may be our culture because the the rise in these kind of things may be due to, you know, there's more things on television about uh, paranormal things. Some of it not so great. Uh, I'll just be honest with you. Uh, and I think some people who, if they watch too much of that, may mistake things uh, that aren't paranormal for things that are. But that's where the good conversation comes in, kind of separating, okay, what's re- reality in the fundamental sense, not the constructive sense, and, and what's what's not. But again, what happened in the spiritualist movement? As that increased, more people got interested in it. I mean, the whole Society for Psychical Research got founded with nothing really that first were scientists and researchers of a serious caliber uh, who came in. And what I'm seeing now is we're, we're starting to get more and more people talking about these things in my field and just in, in the field of science in general. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that if that's happening in the UK, maybe doing a study, maybe it's something I should... Uh, undertake in my, all my spare time uh, to, uh, you know, examine, you know, what, what a therapist think they, they need. Because, I mean, we know our clients are going and seeing people who can help them who aren't therapists. I mean, I had a colleague of mine who did a, a preliminary study, I don't think it's been published yet, that found that people who, have, who are going through bereavement who had had therapy and had gone to a medium found that the differences between the medium and the psychotherapy was minimal. In some cases, they found the medium to be more helpful to reducing their grief. Now, we can argue all whether mediums are realistic or they're, they're truthful or they're just, you know, con men or women. Uh, that, that's a different argument to me. It's I, I'm, I'm interested in, in outcomes. I don't really care. I want to know, are people healing? And I think maybe our field sometimes forget that. We're supposed to be about healing, not about... You know, always if everything lines up a certain way. Now, it doesn't mean we don't op- we keep such an open mind that our brain falls out. But I think when we see if those mediums are doing something that's helping people, not saying that psychotherapists should become mediums, but something else is going on. So if our clients are are, are willing to go other places 
to get their healing, I think that should be a wake-up call for us to say, okay, how can we start to depathologize some of these experiences that we can, can f- facilitate the healing that I think each individual naturally has inside them? I would imagine there is a trend that's happening where people are seeking out other practitioners who are more in their own belief system. And we know that people's spirituality, maybe even the religious backgrounds, their beliefs have a hugely significant impact on their physical and mental well-being. Spot on, as usual. Uh, I think that uh, it's it's really interesting to me. Uh, now, I live in the South, and it may not be as prevalent in other parts of the country, but we have a, a decent amount of uh, counselors, licensed professional counselors, who identify themselves as Christian counselors. And, uh, and that's fine, because they're letting their clientele know what perspective they operate out of. Now, if you're somebody who... Is, is, is like a diehard atheist skeptic and things like that. You're probably looking at that going like, there's no way I'm going to go to that person, right? But you don't see the backlash for someone to go to a Christian counselor that you might see somebody to go to a uh, paranormal informed therapist, you know, because, you know, religion is over on one side and the, and the paranormal are here. Now, some people see them all kind of together, but it's, it's almost, again, who's drawing the distinction? It's okay to talk about your faith that has no real uh, evidence in the objective sense. That's not a criticism, just uh, as an objective sense. Uh, it's okay to, to do that and have your clients find comfort in that. But it's not okay to talk about their experiences of maybe feeling angelic presences or seeing angels or anything like that from a non-pathological lens. I don't understand that. But again, this is the distinction people make. I think I admire clients who do feel that they say, look, this you know, this guy can't help me. I got to go somewhere else. If if they're that invested in their healing, I think we need to honor and, and respect that. But I just think my field, our field of just healthcare in general, if we just give people a space where they don't have to hide, uh, that alone's uh, healing. I mean, cry out loud, you go to an AA meeting, everybody's anonymous, and they just unload. And the healing sometimes is just saying, hey, here's how I screwed up in my life, and I'm continuing to screw up, and I just, you know, thanks for not judging me. Why can't we do that for our clients? It's, it's, it, I don't know. I get, there's some things that annoy me, and I get really almost angry, and this is one of them, because if we're not serving the people who are putting their faith in us, at least half, I shouldn't overgeneralize have we need to take a a long look at that because i i think we're we're missing the the boat i really do well it's great that we're having conversations like this right paul because it helps raise the awareness that these what sometimes is referred to as anomalous or paranormal for in a lot of cases are quite normal yeah uh, again my i go back to when i'm thinking about it my grandmother years ago had an experience where she was, um, felt she was healed by Jesus. My grandmother's a very religious uh, woman. And, uh, I, I, I don't know if that's true. Uh, there's a whole story behind I won't get into, but this experience she labeled as in Jesus healed me from whatever condition that she had. 
And I never said anything because I never thought it was that important to be right. I thought it was more important for grandma to feel happy and healthy. And I, I think sometimes having these conversations, maybe we can check our biases and go, okay, is this, is this my need to be right about that, you know, ghosts don't exist or, or ghosts do exist? This is, or is this really about, uh, where, where the, where our patients and, and clients are? I, I think it, it's really funny as, as I'm saying that I'm thinking about how many people who, uh, when they do feel comfortable, it's real easy that they start talking about their spirituality and their, their faith. But it's very rarely, at least, you know, in my experience, one of the first things that they talk about. I mean, we're, we're trained to assess that. So example, if they have a, uh, a, a social group, that uh, is a, a religious group. That could be a healthy thing when they're uh, depressed, you know, to turn to your church group and, and interact. But we don't really spend a lot of time talking about uh, spirit and faith and, and those kind of things, unless there were certain, uh, like I said, Christian counselors, a Jungian therapists and, and those things. But just I'm talking the, the therapy as, as a whole. So I find that you know, conversations a lot of times can heal us. And I think it's a, it's a necessary uh, one one to have. Yeah, we're supposed to as practitioners, healthcare, mental health practitioners, professionals, serving people, check our own biases, right? There's uh, sex, gender, people's skin colors, which is so silly that we still that's still an issue. But we need to be able to be accepting of everybody's paths and perspectives. And I think you're absolutely correct that drawing upon those strengths of spirituality or religious or whatever the person's beliefs are, maybe even if they're atheist. And I've worked with many people who identify as that. And many times they describe their strength from nature. Sometimes it's their pet, <laughs> you know, or their animal that, that gives them that love and strength to help them. And to really draw upon those can really assist a person in ways that might be being missed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we all have the capacity to emotionally heal if we can gain those resources. It's kind of, they're already there. They just need to be activated. And when we uh, have a, a space where we can explore those and to, to kind of reconnect ourselves to this um, view of ourselves as uh, a, a whole person that that uh, we're not broken and uh, that we're not there's nothing wrong with us inherently. I mean that's that's a mark of good therapy. And uh, I just I I, I don't want to sound so negative about my field because down deep I, I I know for a fact the research shows we in my field do a great job. I mean, the, the research is there. Overwhelmingly, uh, we do a good job. Just in some areas, we can do a lot better. And having uh, conversations like we're having, and, and, you know, both of us are in healthcare, but in different th aspects of healthcare, I think that even, you know, across the board, I think, you know, occupational therapists and psychotherapists should talk, and psychotherapists and medical doctors and nurses. And, and, and what's really funny is, a lot, you talk to nurses, a lot of nurses are some of the first to disclose that they themselves have had paranormal encounters, particularly those in hospitals. 
uh, it is quite common that uh, they will, uh, God, I can't remember the name of the study, but there's a, a pretty uh, longitudinal big study with nurses who have seen things after people die, hear things, because there's so much death and so much transition. So they, are, they uh, have seen figures like there's someone dying and, and a figure there they don't see just kind of floating in the room and then disappearing. And enough of them have had this over time that it is kind of a, a normal way of being at the hospital for some of them. And you just don't talk a lot about it. You get less info from the doctors. They're, they're less inclined to talk about it. But the nurses are, are much more open uh, to talking about and maybe it's because since uh, I don't want to offend the doctors but since nurses these days do the bulk of the work maybe they're just there uh, more often to, to see that happen uh, so uh, again it's 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 out there it's just that we still have I think an outdated model uh, to uh, pull from so rather than uh, adding another 900 pages to the DSM, maybe we might want to sit down and get clear on, uh, you know, is this really something that's harming someone? But if someone is feeling distress from uh, a paranormal event, as they describe, uh, it may be something that, that they need intensive therapy from. Not so much that they are uh, inherently something screwed up with them, but you know, what's the meaning? You know, that's the biggest thing is what does this represent to them? I remember years ago, uh, I saw a young lady who came to me who said uh, she had issues with anxiety. And uh, I asked her, okay, well, when did this begin? And she real quick said, oh, about eight years old. I remember it's eight years old. I think it was November. Now, I rarely hear somebody tell me it's exactly my anxiety. My lifelong anxiety started on November at this time. And so I figured something traumatic had happened. But in a way, it did, because she said when she was eight years old, she lived in Maine at this big old house. And one day she was in her room and turned around and sitting on her bed was a, a young girl. But there, the girl wasn't fully there. It was like she just saw the top half of the girl, like the girl was sitting on her bed, but the bottom half, it was you know, kind of like a mess wasn't there. And she remembers, says it felt like five minutes. I was just frozen looking at her. And then she ran out of the room. And she said, you know, I would not go back to my bedroom for years. I slept downstairs on the couch. It was that terrifying. And so maybe I'm a weirdo, which is always, uh, you know, a possibility. But I tend to just Trust that my clients know what they need to talk about and what they need to work on. So rather than doing like one of my colleagues who I told this about said, well, it's obviously trauma because only people see that it's really the unconscious projecting stuff. I'd ask her more about the dad because maybe the dad's molesting her, you know, coming up with all these stories that had no basis in, in any kind of reality. I'd already checked on the traumatic stuff anyhow. So I just took her at her word and said, well, let's do some anxiety work around this whole ghost thing. You know, she, as an adult, she said she has to sleep with night lights. Uh, she has to go from room to room turning on lights at night. Uh, her boyfriend, uh, who she lives with, uh, has kind of gotten used to, she doesn't like anyone walking around in the dark. And, and so we just, did some work on that. So we finally got to where her anxiety didn't disappear, but it was more manageable. 
only by working on that memory and talking about that memory and tactics to deal with the anxiety. When I went back to that supervisory group, thinking that I'd get an attaboy, I got the, well, you might have missed a golden opportunity, Paul. There's probably a lot of trauma there. Now you're done with, you know, all this. I'm like, gee, when she left, she was better. I thought that was the point. But uh, for some people, it's it can't be real. It, it, so it has to be all these other imagined uh, kind of uh, aspects. But again, if that's what my clients feel is the problem, maybe I should be focusing on that rather than putting my distinction and my agenda on someone. And certainly I, I don't believe you shouldn't uh, check about trauma and those kind of things because those projections and unconscious material can certainly manifest. But I felt it was more important to just uh, continue trusting her. And when she left, she was better than when she showed up. I thought that was a win. But unfortunately, some well-meaning colleagues uh, thought I had dropped the ball. But, well, it is what it is, you know. <laughs> it sounds like a win to me because your client left feeling better and they said that you helped them. Yeah, I, I think well, that's that's all we can do. You know, I mean, in your work, you have an outcome measurement, you know, a pain scale or, or whatever it is that you're doing in, in your uh, occupational uh, work. And we did the same thing. If somebody comes in and they're an eight and a 10 is horrible and they're at an eight and by the time they leave, they're at a two or three, I, you know, I thought that was a win. But again, if we're framing things as it's all it, it, that's obviously a horrible pathology kind of focus, I would probably think that too. But if that was my knee-jerk go-to, uh, I would probably put up a lot of... She probably would have been in therapy a long time and probably wasted a lot of her money. Let's put it that way. Well, and it could probably be quite damaging and harmful to people to not be believed. And further, to have a therapist presume that there is some trauma that has yet to be identified... And that could actually really harm somebody and if they're not able to be seen and validated and accepted for their own experiences. You know, as you said that, and I totally 100% agree, as you said that, it, it reminded me of some clients I've had, some who were uh, sexually assaulted or molested as their children. And when they actually told their story or tried to get help, you know, they weren't believed. And here they are years later in my office and they told me the worst thing in the in looking at the big picture, the worst thing was not the actual molestation or, or assault. It was horrible anyway, was the fact that they nobody believed them. When they tried to tell their story when they needed to, nobody believed them. And I I think maybe we need to again, if somebody's coming in with their story and it's their story. We don't have to believe them as far as that it's absolutely a ghost or your dead wife or everything. But if we just give them a space to tell their story and just allow them to, to sit with it and to converse with them on that, we, that's part of the healing. So I would never want anyone for any reason to leave my office and say uh, for any symptom they have, well, he, he didn't let me tell my story or, or he didn't believe me when I said I was depressed or he didn't believe me when I said I was anxious. I mean, who, who does that, right? Uh, good therapists don't do that. So in this area, we definitely need to believe people. And in that 
what they're experiencing is real to them. Not that we have to believe that it's really what they think it is, but it is real to them. So we need to show them the courtesy, the respect, and geez, Louise, the compassion to be present with them instead of just real quickly going, okay, this, this nutcase on aisle two, oh, I know how this goes, which is just horribly, horribly damaging. In Evelyn Elsasser's research, with along with her team, she mentioned in that research around spontaneous contact with the deceased after death communications that most people found it incredibly helpful. Most people found it very comforting, uh, healing. Many described that it helped to ease their grief. It helped them to mm, even decrease their own fear of death. And that many of them developed a belief or it strengthened their belief in an afterlife and they felt that their loved one was with them, that their loved one was sending them messages that they love them and that they're not alone. However, she did find along with her team that I think it was roughly around maybe 10, uh, 14 or so percent of people who did find it distressing to have those experiences because um, perhaps maybe it was out of their worldview, or maybe the way that it occurred was frightening to them in some way. Well, I think that takes us back to the idea of meaning. And uh, meaning is is so fundamental to everything we do. If we find we uh, that, that a certain thing happens to us and we don't find any meaning, it, it's a negative, and we don't find any meaning to it at all, it's very hard for us to, uh, to bear, as the, the great uh, psychiatrist Victor Frankl uh, wrote about man's search for meaning. He felt that, that when you lose meaning, you've lost everything. And uh, I highly recommend that book to anyone because it, it is an amazing book and it makes a lot of sense. When something happens to us of a strange, odd, disturbing nature that seems to be out of the realm of the, the normal way of experiencing the world... If we have no meaning to that, that that makes our life better, of course it's going to be distressing. So if I'm in uh, um, my house and I think there's a a ghost in the house or a poltergeist, let's say that, and throwing around things, and uh, I don't have any, can't see any meaning to it, of course I'm going to be terrified. It's going to be a negative thing. As opposed to uh, somebody may say, well, if it is a spirit, Maybe they're just trying to get somebody's attention and, and you know, wanting to know that they're not alone. So the way they, they, they kind of frame the situation uh, totally changes the situation. I remember reading about a, a shaman in Africa who some people came to him and they said, our house is haunted. There's a haunted evil spirit in the house. And so the shaman says, oh, I understand. Well, the first thing you need to do is go pick it some flowers and go bring it some fruit. And you as a family sit down and with your dinner, have the flowers and fruit and pull up a chair for them, the spirit. So you can stay here. It's okay. I know you're angry or you're frustrated, but it's probably because we haven't shown you enough love. So we want to show you love. No matter what you do, we're going to show you love. And you do this every day for a while and then come back and see me. And it's amazing that when this, in the story, they came back to see the, uh, and the shaman, they found that there were still some strange things happening, but it was nowhere near as as severe. So 
the whole thing is the meaning of everything had changed. Rather, it was something to react fearful to. Now it was basically they had a new roommate who they needed to just be nicer to, you know, and also interesting. I mean, the family therapist and me, it's also thinking it's also getting the family together to interact in a positive common goal, which I think could help in other ways in, in the household. So how we frame certain things and in context, if we look at certain things in a certain context, it, uh, it makes sense. For example, there is, um, there's a, uh, disorder in the DSM called disassociative trance disorder. So it's basically, uh, one of the categories is a possession. So when somebody, uh, is possessed by what they see as some unseen force and they have no memory of what happened and they've totally lost all their volition, uh, for periods of time, that's seen as a, uh, a pathological disorder that needs to be treated because it's involuntary. Uh, the person may not want it to happen. Well, you change the context. Do you go to some of these uh, more what we call charismatic churches to where uh, like the, some of the Pentecostal churches and, and holiness churches, we call them down here, to where every Sunday uh, people get possessed all the time. They suddenly feel the Holy Spirit come in them. They dance. They sing. They forget time. They start even foaming at the mouth and, you know, shaking and all those kind of things. And then when the service is over, they leave and they go home and everything's fine. But it's not causing a disorder in their life because it's in a context that even people who don't believe in that, uh, that might be a little weird to me, but they're like, well, it just happens at church, right? So with people who are getting possessed, it's got to be something that in the context is is a detrimental uh thing see uh that that's i find that i was reading more and more that there are more cases of people thinking that they're suffering from possession when traditional psychiatry and psychotherapy have not worked so here's another instance of people going to exorcists or, or spiritual healers or shaman because we we're we're not uh, equipped, at least at this stage, to really deal with that because the context that in which we work isn't as open to um, those kind of ideas and perceptions. So I, I think that the meaning of the event, what it means to the person, and what it means to the practitioner, too, uh, can really determine, you know, where that goes and, and who heals and who doesn't. And that's very much in a cultural context where it's accepted to be filled by a spirit. Yeah, it's funny because I have a, a colleague of mine who, um, a guy named uh, Bradford Keeney, who's uh, traveled all over the world. Uh, he's a, a brilliant uh, family therapy theorist, but he's also an accepted shaman in multiple uh, tribes, including the, one of the oldest, the uh, Kalahari, the Bushmen in Africa. He has a, wrote a book called Shaking Out the Spirits. I think it's called it's Fascinating View into that kind of thing. But his, uh, his, perspective is that so much of our culture is, is kind of uptight and rigid. And when you see these cultures that they literally dance and shake and allow the, the spirit to come in in a sense of community, uh, they, they actually seem to be healthier 
in many ways mentally uh, than, than we are. Not as much uh, levels of anxiety and depression and those kind of things. And you can make the argument, but that sense of community that those more tribal cultures have obviously has an effect where we're so disengaged in our culture. But, you know, it is is kind of true no, noticing, you know, some uh, just from the religious thing, some churches are very, uh, the spirit comes into them and they dance and they sing and, and others, that they they're, it's more quiet and all. And that's a personal preference, in my opinion. But his view is that if we could allow the Spirit, in his words, to kind of enter in and to, to work through us and to be a one, with we'd lose our, our constant need for things to always be a certain way, our constant need to understand and dissect things rather than to experience them. He, he, uh, I think he said something to the fact of uh, understanding is often the disease of the psychotherapy field because we're too busy trying to come up with a theory about why something's happening than getting in and interacting with people to, to create change, which I, I totally agree with him on that. Right. We can get so up into our heads that we can lose the ability to just be. Yeah, exactly. I recall hearing a story about a person who was diagnosed or would have otherwise been considered to have schizophrenia, who I believe went to a country in Africa and was treated with respect and was not treated as being pathologized or that there was something wrong with them. And the person's symptoms dissolved. And the person, I believe, went on to actually become a mental health practitioner themselves and no doubt probably integrating some of those great uh, approaches that they learned in that specific environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everybody's worthy of respect, you know, as far as when we're working with people, uh, even the people who, who, uh, who don't, uh, don't, don't seem to, to deserve it. You know, my, my, my grandmother was uh, a brilliant psychologist, even though she never went to college. And, uh, she said that basically, uh, when people act the least like you want to love them is when you need to love them, you know? And I think there's a lot of wisdom there. And we have uh, clients who, you know, they, they it's pretty severe cases. And, you know, I'm not one of these guys who thinks, oh, it's always just a spiritual issue. I think, look, sometimes our, we, we unfortunately have physiological problems. Sometimes our brain just doesn't work right. Sometimes people have hallucinatory experiences that are due to excessive dopamine issues, and they they may have to do medication or psychiatric treatment and care to, to help them and to take care of them. But even with that, if they could just take more of the, the compassion and the, uh, the, the, the respect, as, as you said, I, but that's, that's the therapeutic alliance. So when somebody's taken out and said, hey, you're not sick, you're just different. I mean, that alone, I, I don't know about you, if you've ever had an experience to where you, you always go around, is it me? Is it me? Am I, uh, you know, and you meet somebody who goes, I thought that too. You go, oh, how liberating. I'm, if I'm crazy, at least I'm not alone. You know, that kind of <laughs> feeling. So, but it, but it is that. Say, so, hey, look, you're, yeah, you're, you're not crazy. You're just different. And maybe you see things that other people don't and you hear things other people don't. So let's, let's kind of work with you on how to, how to, how to make that. Uh, work in your life. The other day, I had this young man I'm working with who, nothing paranormal, 
but he's really self-centered. But he, the first step, he's realized how self-centered he is. So I said, well, since you're naturally self-centered, let's work on how we can make it work to your advantage. So instead of just ignoring your girlfriend because you're all focused on yourself, maybe think about, hey, what can I get for myself if I can be nicer to her, you know? And, and so it's kind of a fun uh, back and forth. But by treating his self-centeredness with some degree of respect, this is just where you are right now, I think it, it changed the tone. Instead of me going in and saying, listen, this is an unacceptable way to treat your girlfriend and nobody's going to like you. And, you know, do it kind of you become the parent. And I think, unfortunately, in our field of healthcare, we, we, we do have to parent sometimes, but a lot of times we're the parent we don't need to be. And I think in this example you cited, somebody came along and says, I'm not going to be your parent. I'm just going to be your teacher, your, your guide, uh, the person who may know a couple of things you don't and, and help you along the way. That changes the context and hence changes the meaning. So I'm delighted the story had a happy ending. Uh, with the person going on. I don't know how happy I am to be a mental health professional knowing the pay that's involved these days. <laughs> but I'm glad that uh, they were able to to heal and, uh, and now to give back with their wisdom. And I think that's important. I'm so glad that you brought up people having hallucinations or delusions or sometimes even being referred to as psychotic because there might be people listening thinking, well, there are people who think that they're Jesus and... You know, maybe that's not always a bad thing, but in certain cases, it might not be a great thing. Or they could have some type of what might be considered a psychotic experience, which I believe the, the definition is around that they're not, quote, in reality. But I like what you say about how you look at how much is it impacting the person's ability to function, uh, how much it might be causing them any stress or distress in their lives, and how well you know, they are going about their daily lives. Yeah, I uh, remember a story. It was a very uh, fundamental story, foundational story for me when I began uh, learning about being a psychotherapist. And it was one of my uh, mentors who I never had the chance to meet. He'd passed away, Dr. Melton Erickson, who was a psychiatrist and a medical hypnotherapist and possibly one of the most creative therapists ever. But he was, uh, at that time, early in his career, he was the director of a hospital, I think, in Michigan, a mental hospital. And they had a, a gentleman who thought he was Jesus. And so they, I think they had tried to medicate him as the best they could back then with very limited uh, uh, medications. And, you know, he would have these outbursts and things like they said he would take his sheet and tear the sheet and put it over like, you know, Jesus would wear a sheet and walk around and pontificate and, and all. So the other doctors couldn't help him. The staff, it's just about to drive him, them crazy. So Erickson was fairly new and he heard the case. So one day he went to the man's room, which, you know, the doctors didn't usually go in there. So he went in and there's the guy sitting on his bed looking as if he's you know, being Jesus, however Jesus said, you know, like he's ready to hold court with whoever comes in. And Erickson walks in, and the first thing Erickson does is he comes in and he sits down, he looks at him, he says, I heard that you used to be a carpenter. And the guy said, yeah. He says, I wonder if you could help me. I'm starting a new program for patients here to learn woodworking. And it would really help me 
if someone with your experience could come assist with this program. And the guy's, well, yes, my son, of course I can, you know. What ended up happening is he started assisting Erickson and the people in this program. But Erickson's so savvy, realizing, talk about respect, and someone's model of the world, he realized this guy just needs to be understood in that way and interacting with people in a way that's never uh, a, a, you know, where you're button heads and, you know, I'm Jesus. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. You know, never gets anywhere. And what happened in time is this man with no other change other than the positive interactions, working, being seen as slightly an authority because he had been a carpenter. In time, he uh, kind of slowly came back to his senses, if you will. And I think his uh, his first name was Frank. And he started, in time, calling himself Frank again instead of Jesus and eventually left the hospital and went on and did carpentry work, and uh, last Erickson heard had no other issues. Now, again, this wasn't an overnight thing. It was over a, a long period of time. But I doubt that that man would have ever gotten out of the hospital if Erickson had gone and listen, look, cut the crap. I know that you're not Jesus because Jesus died 2,000 years ago. And he's like, yes, I am. No, you're not. You know, it, it doesn't get any anywhere. It's also a, a, another quick Erickson story. He was in a hospital one time and there were two guys claiming to be Jesus. So he made sure that they roamed together. So I'll let the audience kind of wonder how that went. But that's kind of how he saw the, the world. It's like rather than just treating people like they're broken and, and they're wrong and they need to be fixed, giving them that respect, giving them that creativity is a way to kind of uh, bring uh, people in. Because, yes, unfortunately, there are people who have mental health issues. I don't like to say mental illness uh, I, I'm, some people are in the mental illness industry. I'm in the mental health industry. I think it's a big distinction. I'm making that distinction, but that's just kind of the way I see it. But I, I think that if we, we have more uh, of the focus on the health to give that respect to those people that do have those severe issues is there. Again, going back to if you're having these paranormal episodes but you're not having any other symptoms, I think the first thing to do is to, if you can't debunk what's happening, is to just say, well, let's, what does this mean to you? What is this, what could this mean to you? And, and help that patient client find his or her own, uh, meaning, uh, through that. And then maybe those voices, maybe those sights, maybe those feelings become less fearful. And maybe, like you say, that in the research that people who did get that respect and, uh, the, the outcomes are going to be better. They're going to feel better. Uh, but you know, that's, that's the hope. Uh, as John Lennon said, I may be a dreamer, but I don't think I'm the only one. So. You're certainly not the only one, Paul. And that is a beautiful story that you shared and really just a prime example of how much acceptance, compassion, and I even feel an element of unconditional love can really help transform somebody rather than rejecting them. And further, having them retreat more into themselves and feeling more isolated and perhaps even... uh quote, acting out in ways that are not generally accepted by the public. 
Right. Yeah, it's the same thing like children. I mean, if you have a child who's who's acting out all the time, uh, it's real easy to focus on when they're acting out. And one of the first things when you have these kind of cases with the, the, the bad kids, the little kids, you get the parents to keep a log of when they're not acting out or when they're doing something good. It's like instead of catching them doing something wrong, you catch them doing something right. And what's funny is the majority of the time when the parent for two or three weeks does that where they, they have to focus and write down, oh, he did make his bed today or uh, he did take out the trash. She did, you know, follow what I said do. Then they find that somehow the situation got better. And, you know, I wonder what's happening here. And a lot of it is that when we, how we perceive a thing, again, distinctions, we frame it a certain way. So if we are not giving uh, that uh, child respect, and by that I don't mean that we let them have uncontrolled, uh, you know, access to doing whatever. Maybe we give them the respect of good structure and boundaries, but we don't give them the respect to point out when they're doing something right. It changes our interaction with them. And then it's all this nice little circular system uh, going on. So when you have a, a family member who has a psychotic break, which I have. I have, a, on a personal level, had a family member who, uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to tell the story just because out of respect to them. I'm, I'm, if they would like me to, they can let me know and we'll do it another time. But uh, just sitting with them during that hard time, because you, you sometimes feel, if you're the family, you feel like you've been struck by lightning. You don't know what's going on. So finding a way to honor where they are in their journey, which can be very frustrating and very uh, uh, frightening, terribly uh, frightening is difficult. But if you can, as a family, give your family member that base, if they're having whatever issue, whether it's a psychotic break or whether just depression and anxiety or stress, you find a lot of times it's so much easier to navigate these situations. Now, if you have a, a, a family member who you think's had a psychotic break, but yet it's really just they they really do sense a presence and you know you have to make sure to differentiate is this really something that that's happening uh in a certain setting is this happening only in certain times is this affecting their overall life because if it's just you have a a relative who's sensitive uh to certain things and they uh, label those things as paranormal, that doesn't mean that there's anything really fundamentally wrong with them if if they're not, uh, you know, it's not screwing up their life. And, and that maybe be another another study. So I've got two studies talking to you, Emmy, that I need to do, which is how do the families of people who uh, have paranormal stuff, have, how do they, you know, react with uh, if they whether they're believing or not? How does it affect the family uh, system? I got to stop talking to you because you give me all this work that I now have to do. <laughs> Well, synchronicity happening. There was a reason that I thought you would be great to talk with, and I'm glad to hear that it might also bring some fruit to you and to all of us as well with some more research. Mm -hmm. Good. You know, it comes to mind to me that I I had a, a patient, this was in a hospital, who suffered a horrible car accident. And at at the moment, at the impact of their injury, this person suffered a spinal cord injury up in their neck. And they saw their spiritual guru come to them. 
So these psychic spiritual experiences can also be quite beneficial to people as well. Mm -hmm. So this is where I think I go back to, is the argument about the event or is it about the etiology? So in that example, if that was helpful to that person, what's the etiology? If you're not focused on the etiology, you go, well, that was helpful. Great. You know, good. But if you're like, I need to know why this happened. So in that situation, you may come up with, well, Guru's got supernatural abilities. Guru loves me and, and has shown up. Or on the other side, uh, in, in times of, uh, you know, near death or things, the brain, certain things flood memories in, in different ways and, and you'll, you'll sense presences and as the brain thinks, you know, it's, it's dying or, or, or whatever. And as a result, you know, you'll have these, these situations. Now, both could possibly be true. I mean, that is if, uh, you know, depending on what side uh, you're, you are, but, we can never, we can never really truly know or not know, you know, in each situation. So I think that's the, the problem for a lot of people is that they, they have to absolutely know. I have to absolutely know why this happened. And look, guilty as charged. When I had my weird event, I, I had to know, man. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to, to reading everything and trying to find out, uh, what, what's going on. But it is more important, I think, uh, to have that, that going back to that meaning, that, that what does that mean to you? If you don't believe in that, that stuff that guru's powerful, but yet your brain had that with a meaning for you, maybe is how beautiful nature is, that my brain could give me something to give me comfort at that time. What I find is, and the research shows this, people who have a more religious, spiritual outlook on things tend to feel better generally, than those who don't. It doesn't mean that's always the case. I mean, the work of uh, Marty Seligman, who was the president of the American uh, Psychological Association, he did a start of the field of positive psychology. And a lot of his uh, and other people's work found that, you know, spiritual beliefs, religious beliefs are helpful to your physical and mental and emotional health. So then we're hearing that, but then the other side is that if you have strange things happen, which are of a religious and spiritual nature, well, those aren't good, you know? It's kind of like uh, an old teacher of mine said uh, when I was learning clinical hypnosis years ago, he says, uh, hypnosis doesn't exist and it's bad. So it's like, well, which message do you want me to take that it does exist or it does exist as bad? So it's kind of like that, you know, spiritual and religious. It's okay to have that. It's very helpful. But now if you have some really out there, you know, that that's not good. That's pathological. So, again, we're, we're looking at these dichotomies as opposed to, you know, where's the middle ground? Is there a middle ground? If if in my work. If that, if you believe the guru was there and the guru helped you and you're a better person and you're feeling better, I ain't saying nothing, <laughs> you know. But if you think, you know, somehow the guru's, you know, tracking your thoughts and making your life terrible and all that, eh, maybe you need to intervene a little bit and do some reality testing or, or you know, if it's out of my scope of practice, send you to maybe the the shaman or whoever who, who deals with those kind of things. It could be case by case on how it's impacting an individual. Every research shows that that's the best way to handle everything. I mean, whether it's a, 
uh, physiological or a psychological. Because um, I read a fascinating study uh, the other day that uh, the effects of medication uh, were often dependent on who prescribes them. So it was a study, and I can't remember where I saw the name, but uh, it was essentially uh, two groups, and one group who had the felt they had a connection with their uh, prescribing physician, uh, had a good uh, alliance, if you will. In other words, somebody they didn't know, had no real connection, just treated them like an auto mechanic, came in, did it, did it, and done. The, the ones who felt a better connection to whoever prescribed the medication tend to outperform those that did not, even though it was the same medication for the same disorder, for the same age, gender uh, uh, groups. So it is indeed who you're talking to. And if every uh, client patient is seen as a unique individual in their own way, then you're not going to put any predetermined ideas about how to treat them. And that's not just with paranormal phenomena. It's with anything. Just because somebody comes in and says, oh, I'm depressed. And you go, well, I, I usually do these these two things with everybody who's depressed. That's not bad, but you're missing that particular individual that might need something else. Maybe they do just need somebody to talk to. Maybe they need uh, homework to, to do. Maybe they need to exercise more. I don't know. It, it just depends on the person. So when someone comes in and sits down with me and says, I'm having paranormal weird experiences, which doesn't happen that often, but if it does, this person's so much different than the last person I've seen, how they process it, how they think about it, their background, are they more accepting of it? If it's frightening, is it because they have certain beliefs about the world that make it frightening? And maybe we could tweak those beliefs where it's not so frightening, or maybe their beliefs are real enhancing. So all of this depends on an individual. So if it depends on who's prescribing the medication, it's certainly, what about the client? It depends on them and, and how they respond to me, to you, to any, you know, healthcare practitioner. And sometimes uh, we forget that's the most important thing or is the interaction. I mean, uh, you know, uh, headache medicine may work the same for all of us, but if I feel that the person who gave that to me truly cares about me, that shouldn't have any effect, but it does. So I think by seeing the uniqueness of each person, each therapist, that's where, to me, that's where the, the healing magic often is, whether it's a paranormal event or anything, if they're coming to seek help with. I'm familiar with studies as well where compassion really can impact a person's outcome, the compassion on the part of the healthcare practitioner. And also there's even research on how much the practitioner believes the person can improve, can impact their outcome as well, which I also just want to highlight the work of William Peters, who I also just had the great pleasure to interview, who wrote a book at Heaven's Door, and he's just done some great research with his team, uh, the Shared Crossing Project on shared death experiences. And you mentioned nurses in the hospital, and, and there are other healthcare professionals as well who do spend, typically they spend more time with the patients, doing the patient, the daily cares and so forth, than the physicians. Um, I do know physicians also, uh, probably would like to spend more time with their patients in certain cases. Um, and sometimes they do report those experiences with their patients. But it is often the nurses and others who do um, 
hospice, palliative care workers for sure have these experiences, which is actually how William first started having these shared death experiences and how he recognized how common they were. And so he embarked on this research to show that essentially a shared death experience is um, a person who, ha who has some of the, some of the similar features of near death experience, but another person is experiencing it with them. And in, ca in several cases, the experience can even be validated, uh, where somebody was maybe passing at another location geographically on the planet, and the person didn't even know the person was going to pass. I think in one uh, case, he gives an example, a person actually died by suicide. And so the friend didn't know that was going to happen, but they were out shopping and that person came to them and said, you know, I'm sorry, I just couldn't do this anymore and gave these messages. And the person just kept getting these messages. So we do know that these experiences do happen and there actually is validity uh, behind many of them as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember a Frederick Myers actually had written a good bit about, uh, who was a the founding member of the Society for Psychical Research about um, someone passes away and then at the moment or right after uh, the relative passes away, they see them as an apparition or uh, hearing the voice, or, or something uh, like that. So yes, it is uh, incredibly prevalent. Uh, but I mean, let, let's be honest. Let's say, imagine that I'm uh, I'm running for office, which I would never do, because I'm a healthy individual who uh, you know <laughs> knows his limits. But imagine I'm running for office, and uh, I. Uh, I start telling people, it's like, yeah, you know, when my uh, mom died, uh, I didn't know she was dead, but then there she was. She just appeared before me. There's a small group of people that will be like, well, that makes sense, right? But how quickly, you know, uh, that would be jumped on by the media or certainly the opponents saying, you know, boy, he's lost it. Sometimes the doctor's crazier than his patients. You know, I can see that headline, you know, if I was running for office kind of thing, which is so unfair because, again, in that instance, is the majority getting this? Even if it's not the majority, there's enough uh, that it's happening that why are we still stigmatizing? There's such a stigma for this. For years, they used to talk about people getting health care and specifically mental health care. Uh, the biggest thing was stigma and the stigma of, of, of going and talking to someone. Well, there's such a stigma still to report these kind of experiences, obviously, even to your therapist, but in general, in, in daily life, you become kind of the, the, the strange one or, or, you know, they, they kind of think you're odd. It, I personally think it's one of those things that until it actually happens to you, the individual, it's hard for a lot of people, uh, to perceive it. it it's, it, and it's kind of like if you never believe there's a country uh, called China and you just refuse to believe it, you never see anything about it, and then one day someone takes you there, you can't go back home and go like, well, that was no China. There's no China here, right? There's no country called China. So when people have this, it is not, there's no need for understanding as much as there is for I need to be uh, uh, kind of understood and uh, validated for this. And when you, you cite these kind of things, I think this is the wonderful aspect of, of these kind of conversations and shows. You let people know there are other people who have that. It, it, it says, okay, something is going on here. And we don't have to agree upon the etiology. But if something's going on, isn't that worthy of study? And certainly isn't that worthy of a respectful 
curiosity. I remember years ago watching a video of this young woman. It was like one of these YouTube videos where she was doing a presentation and she was one of these uh, skeptic types. I call them the professional skeptics. Not, I know plenty of really great Wonderful people who are skeptics. But these are the, I think we all know the smug skeptic, you know, kind of types like the, the total, uh, uh, view of, of that. And she was given a presentation and I was just watching the presentation and she showed a video of some TV psychic working with some lady. And I, this is at that time I didn't follow any of this stuff. I don't know what was going on here. And, uh, the lady had lost her, I think it was her son. And, uh, had been to therapy and still was grieving. And the psychic said, no, oh, here's some information. And the woman said, oh, that's him. That's him. Oh my gosh. And the lady went away from that session healed. She just, I mean, the grief, it was mostly gone. She felt good. Ended the clip. And then the psychic said, okay, here's what happened and pointed out the cold reading stuff, which I'm not saying that wasn't there. Okay. I'm not saying it wasn't there. But then the comment afterward is how gullible this poor lady is. And, you know, it says, P.T. Barnum says, sucker born every minute. All this really negative stuff. And the whole time I'm thinking, where is your compassion? I mean, you can disagree whether there's uh, psychic mediums who can talk to dead people. But if you can't see that in that moment, that woman who has the worst grief a parent can ever have no longer has that. Is that the only way we can treat this? You know? And, and I think that's, that's kind of my problem at this point. The person I am now, after I've had my experience and the research I've done, is, it's, is the ideology that important? It doesn't mean that we need to be uh, deceiving people intentionally and, and, you know, for money and, and those kind of things. But if people, again, are, they're being healed, they're, they're helping on their transition through these stages of bereavement and grief. Those kind of things make me pause and go, okay, where is the harm? You know, you can continue in therapy for six to nine months or more, or you could have a session like that session. And if you feel better, I mean, I'm just getting to the point where like, who am I to judge? You know? And then when we have all this information that you just, like you just said, it's like people are having this. I think we need to change our context. Really do. And there are people who teach people how to contact and communicate with their loved ones as well, which can be very healing. Mm -hmm. Paul, if you were to go out on a limb with your experience, and I know you can't say 100% it's this way or that way, how much do you think people who have these types of psychic phenomena, sometimes referred to as anomalous or paranormal, mostly because it still needs to get into our culture and into healthcare that it, that many of these experiences are normal. How much do you think of these experiences that people have, uh, are true experiences? And then how much do you think somebody might actually be in a category of needing more help and that it really, is just that they're maybe their neurons aren't firing quite correctly or they maybe got too much or too little sleep or took a substance or didn't eat properly. I think uh, I, if I had to do a percentage, I think that it's probably, it may be a 50-50. And by that, I want to, I want to clarify. I think that the bulk of everyone who were to seek out help 
who are having that, I think the bulk of people truly believe this is happening. I mean, there are some who are out for a, a buck, like, you know, to get a, get their picture on TV or sell a book or, or whatever. But I think the bulk of people are totally believe this, whatever's happening to them is legitimate. Uh, I think in some cases you can find that there's issues with trauma in early childhood that often manifests throughout uh, adolescence and adulthood as strange psychic phenomena. And I think this is why it's good to have uh, a good therapist who's trained to understand uh, not just, you know, the, the nature of what we perceive as paranormal, but also the neurobiology of uh, trauma. Because sometimes things are trying to process and there is uh, one. Th- there's few things I agree with Freud, but one was a projection. Is that we often project out into our environment sometimes things that are frightening to us, sometimes things that are uncomfortable. And it's I have found that for a lot of people who are severely traumatized, it is not uncommon for them to experience paranormal phenomena. Now, is it true phenomena? Here's where it gets tricky, because in one breath, uh, you'll have some researchers say, no, the person themselves are creating it. And what I mean is, if they're projecting these things out into their uh, environment, then it, it may be solely that they alone are experiencing it. But if these things are happening and they and others are experiencing it, you know, then we have to say, a whole different conversation about the power of our mind. If we look at the mind as non-local, which I have come to believe, I haven't always believed that, but I've come to believe that the mind is non-local. When people have gone through things and they're trying to process and heal and all, it is a disruption a lot of times of this filter that they have to take in incoming information. So they may perceive things in ways that other people don't. Here's a real quick uh, example, not the best, but a quick one. Generally, children raised in traumatic households, like a parent who's incredibly erratic, unstable, violent, like uh, addicted uh, alcoholic households, are generally incredibly sensitive to details little subtle changes in the environment. It's like I had a client whose father was an abusive alcoholic. He says, I could tell by the way he opened the car door when he got home from work, what kind of day, what kind of night we were going to have, whether he was going to be violent or what. And when I saw that door, it didn't look, I was, I went and stayed over at a friend's house. Well, some have, some people even have more sensitivity to their perceiving things at an unconscious level that we don't even know that they're perceiving and they don't even know. So what may appear to them as messages like psychic messages and and things like that may be because of their survival circuit in their brain so attuned to subtle changes due to this post-traumatic stress they're going through that they're picking up on cues that normal people, and I don't want to use that term, but I'll say the norm, and I meant statistically, uh, aren't able to pick up. So they may sense people's moods without information that the rest of us may need. They may sense how certain things are going to happen that the rest of us 
uh, can. But then there are those who have no history of trauma, and they naturally, uh, you know, have those similar kind of experiences. Uh, there have been studies to found that when people are given a, a drug called Lepidova, uh, who, uh, which is commonly used for Parkinson's, uh, which will sometimes when people take that drug, it, it, it may have them start to hallucinate and see things that aren't there and all that. They found that people who in a test groups who took that, uh, Lepidova drug like dopamine, um, it, uh, increased the dopamine to where they became more open to different ideas about psychic phenomena and different, um, ways of interacting with people talking about those kind of things. So, that drug kind of uh, gave uh, some people the hypothesis that it is clearly the malfunctioning of dopamine, which is what we've heard for years about schizophrenia is that we're having, you know, for like paranoid and disorganized schizophrenia, you, you may have excessive dopamine. For catatonic, you have decrease of dopamine, you know, all these kind of, you know, ideology ideas. So it may be that some people naturally have a biological predisposition to have that due to dopamine. But then in the next category, there may be people who don't have that, that just all of a sudden things start happening, particularly in their adult years. That's just out of uh, the ordinary. People who start to have uh, experiences. I uh, One of my Colleagues and friend, a guy named uh, Dr. Glenn Morris, who is the author of a fascinating book for martial artists called Path Notes of an American Ninja Master, where he talked about uh, martial arts, but also what he described as what some people call a kundalini experience that he had when he, I think he was about 40 years old. So he had no weird stuff really happen to him, but he entered this kind of uh, experience of uh, intense meditation, uh, Chinese Qigong work and then one day his spine opens up as he kind of is like he starts having all these weird experiences thought he was going to die uh there's a, i think gopi krishna wrote a book on kundalini where he talks about a similar kind of thing as he thought he was going to die repeatedly thought he was going mad and all this and it took uh my friend a, a time to kind of get some degree of balance back which is you know uh, leading me to say is this enlightenment uh paranormal thing. Is this a natural biological quality that gets activated in some people when certain conditions happen? In some people, it's trauma. Some people, it's grief. Some people, it's meditative martial arts or, or whatever. Uh, some may just be that, you know, their, their bodies uh, uh, happen. We, we talk all the time about um, uh, the diathesis stress model in that our genetics, because uh, genes are either turned on or off. You know, we have all these genes, some never get turned on, but we may have this gene expression that happens when certain stressors happen. And then we get certain diseases, we get certain things that bother us, but could it also be a diathesis stress for these Parapsychological episodes, these uh, kundalini experiences, these uh, everything's fine. One day you're in your kitchen, you turn around and there's two, uh, you know, mythical elves sitting there going like, we've really wanted to talk to you about the future. Do you have a minute? You know, and we can laugh about it. But there's been I've read some serious people who are serious. Who say, I don't know where this came from, but it, but it just started. So a long winded 
as I always am when, when we're talking, uh, reply to what you're, what you're asking, but I think it may be a 50-50. And by say real, meaning that it is real to that person, that these kind of things are happening, uh, maybe due to their biology, but at the same time, over on the other side, it may be due to certain conditions that are happening, certain stressors. And then, you know, in the middle ground somewhere is, uh, the, who knows? There may indeed be, uh, the fact that why would you suddenly hear your, uh, deceased husband of five years call your name very clearly when you're in the other room? Uh, you know, and we go back to John's and Van Oss's, uh, research that, you know, we're all going to have probably at least one quick episode of a hallucinatory experience. Right. There's so many maybe dimensions to our consciousnesses that we are continuing to explore, which is why it's so wonderful to have you here and to have these conversations. And it could be that people might also have coexisting um, pathological or challenges in their lives that are distressing them. At the same time, they could be having these amazing psychic spiritual openings occurring and that something is sort of working out in that process as well. Yeah, I, I don't think we fully understand the role of stress. I think we have a, a basic idea of how it affects the immune system, increases cortisol, you know, levels, uh, you know, all these kind of things, how it damages long-term stress. But on the uh, psycho-spiritual level, I don't think we have uh, an understanding of why certain people with certain uh, stressful instances have certain experiences happen. I remember uh, the uh, the author, uh, I forget, oh, maybe Thomas Hartman, I'm excuse me, wrote a book called Boundaries, where the whole uh, book is really about that some people who their personality, they're so open, you know, the big five factor personality that we learn in psychology is the openness to experience. They rank so high in openness to experience that they almost literally bleed into other people. Uh, psychologically. And those people are more inclined to be very artistic, very uh, uh, risk-taking, and not always in a dangerous way, uh, but also real empathetic and feel connection. So if someone's sad, boy, do they feel it, you know? And it seems to be those personality types are more prone to having what they perceive as psychic, parapsychological uh, experiences. So we have to also look at personality types in addition to, to biological uh, types. Gene Houston, uh, the, uh, the um, author, talks about people have uh, leaky margins as, as in their psychic stuff, and, and some people will bleed in, which is why you always hear the, the healers talk about, you know, you got to put up a, a barrier here because people kind of, you know, it's, you know, uh, you have a, a somebody in your household who works in healthcare, and they've had one of those days where it's like they come home and they take salt baths, uh, just because they feel like it's just they can't get away for 13 hours of yuck, and it's just I just got to mentally cleanse. But maybe there's a physiological thing that those leaky margins ended up uh, getting into people. The ones that I'm most fascinated, the cases I'm most fascinated in are the, what I call the left brain types, which I've been guilty of in the past. You know, I call them the classic engineer, computer science people who it's all about numbers and this is reality and this not. They think in, um, in a binary, you know, it's either real or it's not. And when they start having weird stuff happen to them, uh, that's when it gets really interesting. That's when we have to say, okay, 
Could this possibly be that the world is a little stranger than you thought? And that's a hard thing for someone who believes that everything is, is, you know, metaphorically black and white. There's no shades of gray. And then you give them not only gray, you give them a lot of turquoise. And they're like, I don't know what to do uh, with this. I have a, a friend of mine, really nice guy who is a, he's a nuclear engineer. And he told me one time, he's like, I don't know what these people about ghosts. Everybody knows that ghosts don't exist. That's just ridiculous. Anyone would believe in that. Well, also notice that he's very devout and goes to church. I said, so you're going to tell me ghosts don't exist, but it's okay for you as a scientist to believe that there's some invisible guy in the sky who, if you say enough nice things to, he'll help you out. Right. And it did in a funny way. I'm not trying to make fun of anyone whose belief is that, but it's like he had no answer for that because to him, it, it's a, but it's just it's it's all this this belief of you know what's happening in the world and when you have a rigid belief and then suddenly you get shook up by uh, you know this house isn't haunted and then things are flying off your wall that those are the guys and girls that I'm really fascinated to talk to because it's so different as opposed to someone who grew up in a really hippie household his mom was an energy healer and his dad you know played uh uh, the uh, the flute and metaphysical, you know, uh, pro progressive rock bands. They may be brought up a little more inclined. So I, I find find the the, the um, I guess we we sometimes call them the the realistic or the conventional models of personality really fascinating to talk to because they're the ones that seem to have the toughest time really uh, compartmentalizing this ex these experiences that they're having in a way that can benefit them. Maybe we're all more connected than we realize. That is very true. And uh, I think that's still, I think every great spiritual teacher talked about, you know, our problem is all the separation, but it, it's really hard for, you know, it's hard for me because I'm, I'm here, you're there. I mean, we're not connected, but we are. But the connections are so, are so not seen. And when we are brought up that we, if it's not seen, it doesn't exist, then we're going to continue to, to see those separation uh, between ourselves. And to be quite honest, it's pretty darn uncomfortable if you really think that someone could possibly uh, have an intuitive side to understand that we may be feeling or thinking a thing. Because if we're thinking we're separate and somebody comes into our uh, psychological space, that, that for a lot of people, that's, uh, that's pretty unnerving. Uh, and when I had my experience, it was a little unnerving uh, for me. And uh, but but at the same time, it's transformed me, I think, in a positive way. I've still been able to hold on to my left brain and uh, I, but I'm a little more open to, to my right brain, uh, too. So maybe maybe why I like those engineer guys is because I used to be kind of one of them. And so, you know, I recognize uh, 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 me in a different time period, you know. <laughs> I've had a couple of those experiences here with you today in our conversation where I've thought of uh question or comments or a topic and you brought it up without me <laughs> needing to do that. So I do feel that there's a way very much to be in sync with each other, um, even when we're not physically in the same location. You wrote a great book on the art of creating a magical session. I just want to touch on how you share that therapists or mental health practitioners can use these psychic intuitive phenomena to enhance their sessions working with their clients as well. My view of a magical session is not so much from a psychic perspective or a spiritual perspective. It's 
creating the conditions in which those things may manifest. And what I mean is, is this. If you're a therapist, a coach, whatever it is, and you're willing to increase your reliance on your intuition and your openness to being spontaneous and to improvise, you create magical openings for people. So you may uh, talk to uh, a person, and as you're talking to them, you're hearing the same kind of thing you'd always hear. So you may, you know, doctor, I'm very uh, anxious all the time and I can't seem to settle down. But as you're talking to them, you, you just, your intuitive gut says, um, ask them if they've ever painted a picture of a bird. And you trust yourself to say that. Listen, I don't want to interrupt, but have you ever painted a picture of a bird before? And they may say yes, they may say no. But their response opens this door to another place. So if they say, well, no, I, I've never painted. I painted when I was a kid. Next follow-up question, what'd you paint when you were a kid? Then you start talking about the things that this person may have painted. You move them away from the focus on the problem, and you follow your intuition and improvisation, spontaneous interaction to open this place where people can access their inner resources and, and healing can happen. But, but what, when you're, when you're really listening to your intuition, I gotta warn you. If you're one of these engineer types with the really left brain that I've been talking about, this is gonna be spooky sometimes because the more you begin to trust yourself and begin to take active participation in the session, more of, instead of a passive watch and, and try to figure things out to instantly jump in and interact in a, in a positive, enhancing, uh, alliance building way, weird things start to happen. One is you start getting ideas to say things that make no sense, and then it totally makes sense. And then it totally moves the session to another place. You may suddenly feel the, the need to get up and ask them if they've ever danced before, if they would teach you a dance move. I'm not kidding. This has happened, okay? Uh, and, and it just leads into something else. Uh, the important thing here, and I'm not trying to be to where it's over the top, but to give ideas that when we allow ourselves to be open to moving away from a problem focus and whatever we're doing by following our intuition, we open the gates for healing, creativity. If you ever have a problem, if you're incredibly creative about the problem, it suddenly stops being a problem. But we, a lot of times, get so stuck in our theories and our techniques and, you know, and for somebody who's like in a medical field, they go, well, I don't do psychotherapy, so that doesn't apply. You know what? Even when you're setting a broken bone, how you interact with that person can affect that bone. I think we already talked about it with about the different medications. So if as you're setting the bone, you uh, you suddenly just ask them something that pops in your head that maybe makes a person laugh, maybe it goes easier, or makes them think about something that maybe you needed to know to make this procedure a, a little different. I don't know what that is, but you have to be open to magic. And the magic comes from knowing yourself, being comfortable with yourself to allow and to trust yourself, to allow these intuitive, uh, for lack of a better term, psychic flashes, not only to come in, but sometimes to act on it. And this 
requires some discernment because your brain will come up with all kinds of crazy stuff. So you have to really be in touch with that intuitive nature. So my intuitive nature told that lady who's had anxiety since she was, you know, a kid, don't worry about going down all this other road and spending all this time trying to figure out if it's some other traumatic event. Talk to her about the ghosts. And that's what we did. And that's how she got her results. So I have to learn to listen to myself. We're not taught to listen to ourselves. We're usually taught uh, to listen to authorities and to experts. And sometimes that's a good thing. But uh, I think, was it Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify? <laughs> I think this is a good thing when we're talking to experts. Because, you know, the only expert that matters in the moment in the, the present is us. We have to say, I have to trust myself. If I'm getting a weird feeling and I don't feel comfortable with somebody, maybe I should just take a step back and examine that instead of just going, oh my gosh, it's just me. And then you find out this person may be a thief. They may be dangerous, right? But other thing is something about this person, I need to ask them about if they if they ever, uh, like I said, if they ever danced, if they ever did uh, any kind of thing out of the way, ever went Whitewater rafting, out of the blue. If that's what you're feeling, that's what you do, which opens up the space. Because my, my issue with, with my field is it's oftentimes boring because we're working in things we already know, theories we already know, techniques we already know. Healing is in the mystery. And we have to get into the unknown in this uncomfortable area. It's very uncomfortable because I don't know what I, right now I don't even know what I'm going to say next. That's the joy of these interviews because I, when I get going, I just got to know what's going to say next. I may flop my words here. I may say the wrong thing, may mispronounce, but I just have to trust that maybe I'll have something that people can benefit from and we're just going to roll with it because that's where I'm headed. And when you treat every interaction with a person like that, it brings this magical component known as authenticity. Going circling back to the idea your client comes to you with paranormal stuff. If you're authentic and you're like, hey, it's okay to talk about that. Your authenticity gives them permission to follow their own authenticity and their intuition as well. And it's magic happens. It's there. You just got to look for it. Beautiful description, Paul. And for someone who's listening to all of your brilliant insight, who wants to work with a practitioner who might be more open and have even some training, which I think is necessary to work in these realms, how would you go about suggesting they find somebody to assist them? I wish I could give you a a website, you know, that uh, maybe this is my third thing you're giving me today, Emmy, to where maybe now I have a website for people who have been trained. and uh, I'm going to be so busy now. Uh, it would be nice a place where people could go and do it. But as of now, I don't know. I do know that people uh, who have been trained with a what we call a transpersonal psychology or transpersonal psychotherapy background, and there aren't a lot, but there are some, are certainly... That's a big component of their study is the subjective experience. You know, it's funny because I think um, uh, that Rose Cameron in the European Journal of Psychotherapy and Counseling, uh, I think 2016, uh, came out, said something about that the whole field of phenomenology should be actually better studied in psychotherapy research because it's all subjective. Phenomenology is subjective. And so much of psychotherapy is subjective as well because 
I can't see someone standing there and go, oh, wow, they're suffering from this or that. It's their inner experience that's causing them turmoil rather than an outward manifestation. So it's always going to be a somewhat of a subjective nature. But the transpersonal field, uh, people who have studied that, uh, may be certainly more open. People who have a humanistic psychology background. The biggest thing is to find uh, people by, and it's going to be scary, but call them up and ask them, look, this is why I'm coming. What are your thoughts on this? And just say, I don't want to be labeled. This is what I want. I have a colleague named Betty uh, Friedson, who's written a wonderful book on intuition in clinical work for therapists. Betty is actually not only just a psychotherapist, an excellent psychotherapist, she's also a psychic. And she's held that private, the psychic stuff for years. So when people call Betty, she just practically jumps for joy because she can, her experience to help people. So you never know who you're calling on the phone. And it may be that 50% will help, 50% won't. You may have to call a few times, but you'll find eventually somebody. And that's really the best thing. And it's also got to be somebody that you connect with, with any type of therapy. If, if you're going just because of their, their credentials, uh, because of their, uh, schooling and education, I mean, all that's important. But if you don't feel comfortable with them, no matter what, you're not going to get far. You know, I, I got a, I got a doctoral degree, but they all call, all my clients call me Paul. And that's fine because I was Paul first. And I want them to feel comfortable with me. So if you get somebody who says, yeah, let's talk and you feel comfortable, that's that's your best bet. And uh, I, I, everyone who's listening, do the best you can. You'll eventually find somebody, I hope. Paul, do you have any last thoughts today, knowing that this conversation can continue and I hope it spurs more conversations on psychopathologizing psychic phenomena? Well, my... Last thoughts. I want to first address anyone who's in the field. My gut is if, if you're watching these programs, listening to these kind of programs, generally you're, you're, you're much more open minded. But for some reason, if you happen to just come across this and, and have waded through all the, the information and now listening to me and you're, you're not quite comfortable, you're not, uh, a, you know, ready to, to think that, you know, paranormal phenomena exist, that's okay. I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to reiterate, if you just give people dignity, amazing things will happen. So if someone really believes they're, they're being haunted or they've had a near-death experience and all that, just sit with them. Just don't judge them. Allow them to be where they are, and even just even for nothing else, just be present with them. And a lot of times they will find their own answers. If you can sit with someone through all of these other traumatic, horrible things and be supportive, really, you can do it with these uh, anomalous kind of activities. My last thoughts are if you are experiencing things that are uh, upsetting to you, you're not alone. You're really not. I mean, I mean, I've been talking about all the, the data and the research, so you're not alone. And it just, it just may take a little time to find, uh, somebody who can help you. And maybe if you're out there and you need support, maybe support, uh, start a support group for people who've had paranormal events who aren't mentally ill or whatever this, you know, jargon is about that. And, you know, maybe talking to other people can, can be a healing, 
uh, process, even if you don't have the answers. But um, uh, in the end, it's you're you're everybody's worthy of love, you know. What a beautiful way to wrap up our conversation, Paul. Jay Leslie, thank you so much for being with me today. I've enjoyed our conversation, as always, immensely. Yeah, well, as, as I said, every time we get together, it's, it's always a, it's a great time, and I learn a lot, too. And thank you for what you do, Amy. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. 